Hey guys. guys! Welcome back to another episode of Teach Me Out of History. My name is Laura. And my name is Jasmine. And this week we're going to be talking about uh, the Uyghur Muslims in China and the concentration camps that are being brought to light in Xinjiang. So this week uh, we're going to be talking about that and so I'm just going to give a brief overview of this week's episode. So we're going to start about uh, with a brief history of genocide. So what exactly genocide means, because everybody in the news and on social media is considering it to be one. They're comparing it to the Holocaust. So we want to just give a brief history behind what a genocide actually is and what it means. And we're going to compare it with the facts of this particular case and determine whether or not we believe it is a genocide. Right. Uh, not only are we going to do that, but we're going to talk about the issues within international organizations and uh, international criminal law and in itself to see why nothing is being done about this and what are possible resolutions to this issue. So Jasmine's going to start off today. She's going <laughs> to basically talk about, the. she's going to spit all the facts. Right. So let's go. <laughs> so um, I think I want to start basically by, um, by mentioning like who are Uyghurs and yeah. Um, you know, like their origins. So uh, Uyghurs are Turk-speaking minority from Central and East Asia. They are native to Xinjiang. And um, they're also one of the 55 recognized ethnic minorities in China. And their population is approximately 12.1 million in China specifically. So this is who, who they are. Now, why are they being attacked and, uh, and, and persecuted is because of their religious beliefs. So they are um, Muslim Uyghurs and they're being attacked basically for, for what they believe in. Now, before we dive into um, our beliefs on uh, if we think this is a genocide, we should probably just go over what exactly constitutes a genocide. The Genocide Convention of 1951 define genocide as any of the following acts committed with intent to destroy a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group by, first of all, killing members of that group, mm -hmm. two, causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group, third, by deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part, fourth, by imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group, and fifth, forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. Now, genocide as a crime rests on establishing the intent of exterminating um, a particular group for who they are, and for usually what they believe in, what they practice, mm -hmm. and, and so on. Before we proceed, I would just like to mention that we won't be going into too much detail um, about the history of genocides today since we have previously discussed it. But if you would like to know um, more about its origins, you can listen to our previous episodes, especially the one discussing the Rwandan genocide. So now we will begin by explaining the whole situation in Xinjiang uh, with the Uyghur Muslims. So, over 1 million Uyghurs have been detained for re-education, and put that in quotations. Quote, unquote, yeah. <laughs> right? And um, because basically they have been classed as extremists for simply practicing their, their religion. Um, 
So they basically say that they're offering them training and education, but really what they are doing is they are brainwashing them. So these camps are, are internment camps. They're keeping them there and they're really never really allowed to escape. There's increased discipline and punishment. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, they they're promote, detaining them for absolutely no reason. They, they, they're promoting um, repentance of their sins through confession. They're also uh, making remedial Mandarin studies the top priority at these uh, at these camps. And basically, so they're they're they want them to transform their their way of, of uh, life they, and they their want beliefs. forced assimilation. Exactly. So this brings me basically to to my next point. And um, so I basically stated before what makes a genocide, and now we're I just want to go through that list in accordance to what is happening to these Uyghurs in uh, Xinjiang. So the first two preconditions to genocide are killing members of the group and causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group. Yeah. Right? So what is happening to these Uyghurs is that in the concentration camps or the internment camps, whatever you want to refer to them as, um, detainees are abused, raped, tortured, and we are really uncertain if, if you know these people are being killed because this is like rather new and there isn't that much documentation well, on it. Well, because it's still present. It's still going it's on. It's still, exactly. So we can't really be sure if these people are being killed or, you know, what is really happening to them. Yeah. Um, so basically those who do live in these camps are being subjected to electrocution, waterboarding, repeated beatings, injection of unknown substances, and a bunch of other atrocities such as, you know, they're forced to take pills and get injections. And uh, they are human subjects of medical uh, experimentation, organ harvesting and sterilization procedures. And they must also memorize like propaganda songs. So it's just really, they really want to erase like their whole religion and, and culture. Yeah. Well, they're, they're stopping procreation. They're stopping. Right. And this brings, exactly. And this brings me to my, my next points is that the the third point of what constitutes genocide is deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of the life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part. So in other words, intentionally imposing harsh measures to subjugate and bring about the destruction of a group's livelihood. Yeah. So um, how is this being done to the Uyghurs? Well, the Chinese government is doing this by creating an open-air prison and outside of the camp, so people who are not being interned in these camps, they're also facing this sort of, like... Well, strict restrictions. Exactly, because the Chinese government created a spyware app that must be installed on all their phones so that the government can monitor their activity. Women cannot wear the, the hijab unless, you know, she is over the age of 45. Facial recognition can capture who is passing by a mosque and punish them for doing so. Uh, so they're really, really on strict watch. Mm. Also, they are not allowed to speak any of their uh, languages. There is no halal food. And pork and alcohol must be in every household. Now, this is big because Muslims do not eat pork and yeah, do not against their religion. alcohol. So they're it's really, forcing... Exactly. It's really against their religion. So they're forcing them to do things that go against their beliefs. So long story short, it's forced assimilation. Exactly. And also... Chinese forces are in one million Uyghur Muslim homes as guests to monitor their everyday life and activities. So, I mean, if you really think of it, this is just 
crazy. Yeah. You know what it kind of reminds me of? Like, just, like, throwing it out there. Mm -hmm. Like, it just reminds me... Like, it just, it can, it compares to, like, say, for example, how we treated the natives in Canada. Like, we forced, we exactly. forcefully assimilated them. But I'm sure if we had the technology like we did back then that we had today, it would have looked very, very similar. I, I agree 100%. And, you know? and even another thing is these Uyghurs can only communicate with their family in Xinjiang through the this Chinese app that the government created, which is yeah. called WeChat. So messages in this app are not encrypted and the Chinese government can, can read their conversation. So, so there's you know, zero privacy. Zero privacy. And this is why many Uyghurs make no use of the app, really. Yeah. So by not making use of it, they, they can't don't even communicate. communicate with their family. So they don't even know like if a family member is sent to the internment camp, if they disappear, yeah. where did they go? What happened? Are they dead? So, and a few also, um, like a few sources indicated that the Chinese authorities use social media apps to follow and intimidate these um, Uyghurs Mm -hmm. and that Chinese security guards are trying to recruit Uyghurs to spy on other Uyghurs from the community. Wow. So it's like they're using them to to tell. Well, they're 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 trying to make them turn against each other as well. Yeah, exactly. And so that's, that's really, really crazy. And... Before I continue, you're probably wondering, you know, uh, what 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 are conditions that that a lot like how why are Uyghurs being sent to these camps? Yes, it's a religious. Um, they're being sent because of their religious and ethnic identity, but also um, there's uh, some like the sources say that um, with personal information from the Uyghurs. Uh, such as how often someone prays or how many Qurans he or she has in their household. And uh, this is basically how they judge if somebody should be sent to internment camps and whether somebody should be released or have to still stay longer in these camps. So um, it's really crazy. So, for example, wearing a hijab or visiting a foreign website and applying for a passport, all of this can be used as a reason to send Uyghurs to the camps. Um, and then, you know, so it's like really, really random. Let's just say, even if you were in contact with someone abroad or you have a family member abroad, you engage in, in, in your own religion. So if you're praying or if you mention the word of God in your speech, uh, even if you're fasting, this is enough for you to be sent to the camp. So it's really, really, really crazy to think of. Um, so they're really trying, the Chinese government is really trying to censor these Uyghurs. Now, going back to the five possible acts of genocide. Um, so the, the fourth and fifth state that imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group and forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. So how, um, how is this happening to the Uyghurs in Xinjiang? Well, the Uyghurs and other minorities have to endure mass forced sterilization and abortions in 2018 80% of all IUD placements in China were performed in Xinjiang despite accounting for a mere 1.8% of China's population so these IUDs can be removed only by state approved surgery or else prison terms will follow so you know women have no choice to to you know uh have an IUD placed in them and then they it's not even up to them to remove them they can't even decide well you know I don't want this anymore no it's up to the government so this is you know one of the ways in which they um 
in which they monitor and stop the the continuity of this Uyghur um, ethnicity. And families are also being broken up. Children between the ages of three and eight are being sent to state-sponsored orphanages where they are being, you know, brainwashed as well. They're, since they're so young, they're being taught a different way of life, which in the future they hope to, I guess, like erase their their previous um, their their previous beliefs. So it's really important, I guess, to state that. Uh, we don't believe it's an ethnic cleansing because it is not just forceful expulsion, but it is really the sterilization and abuse and the deaths that constitute the intent to destroy. Yeah. However, as you mentioned before, the deaths are not confirmed in numbers as this is still ongoing. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing is, is that let's go back to the definition of genocide. There's no numerical thresh point of what, how many people should die in order for a crime to be consisted of a genocide. The most important thing of this definition is the genocidal intent to eliminate this group. And through the actions that Jasmine just finished explaining, they prove exactly that. They don't prove that it's an ethnic cleansing, that they're just eliminating them from that territory. They're proving that they want to either assimilate them, remove their culture, or remove them completely. Yeah, exactly. Especially by by stopping the the birth of children. Yeah. That's like they're they're forcefully putting IUDs into women and... Well, they're forcefully giving them abortions, sterilizing them. Yeah. Just, you know, everything. And also, a a big part of this And that's from what we know of. Keep that in mind. Yeah, and also another thing that, like, really blows my mind is this whole uh, organ harvesting. Yeah. They're, you know, they're harvesting hearts, lungs, kidneys, and skin from these Uyghurs. Oh, my gosh. And so, you know, obviously by doing that, it results in in deaths. Yeah. Um, And, like, a really interesting term that I came across while, like, reading a few sources uh, for today is the term halal organs. So, just, like, a a little note on the side here is that Uyghur Muslims are slaughtered on demand for the benefit of wealthy organ buyers. Wow, like to be sold in the because, black market, right? I guess. Because halal, like halal organs, basically these Uyghurs have never eaten pork or drank alcohol, so this kind of organ can, it's like well, they're the healthier, tar- exactly. They're healthier, so so they're more in demand. Yes, I guess. and the main target for this is the Uyghurs. Wow, um, you know, and well, halal yeah, organs. Listen to this: yeah. halal organs are sold for three times the price of regular organs. Wow. Okay. So this is like really, really, really crazy, and um, so that was like a little fun fact, but not really fun. Morbidly, <laughs> right? Oh my god! Wow. Yeah, and also I think uh, another thing that that we should mention is that the human rights organization signed an open letter on September fifteenth um, of this year, so twenty twenty, yeah. declaring China's treatment of Uyghur Muslims in the Xinjiang province uh, a genocide. Oh wow! So they they did write that, and the letter cited a November twenty nineteen UN report that raised concerns over increasing practices of arbitrary detention, enforced disappearance, absence of judicial oversight, and procedural safeguards within an increasingly uh, securitized environment, particularly for designated minorities, notably Uyghurs. So basically, it's everything that that I I had just mentioned. So I I find that's interesting because, you know, it, it was brought to life but Laura will explain uh, shortly, like, 
yeah what are the limitations to these uh, specific sure. organizations and uh, just be- before going on to that another important thing that i would like to point out is that thousands of detained uyghurs have been forced to work at factories that supplied garments to some of the world's biggest brands while receiving little to no wage so like sweatshops you know exactly so more than eighty thousand uyghurs have been transferred to work in factories scattered across china mm-hmm. and Reports have claimed that if the work assignments were neglected or refused, the Uyghurs would suffer from arbitrary detention. And, um, you know, some of the big, the big corporations that, uh, some of the, excuse me, brands that have been linked to specific cases of Uyghur forced labor are Abercrombie and Finch, Amazon, Ikea, Gap, H&M, Victoria's Secret, and uh, Nike. So uh, on this note, actually, the Washington Post visited a factory reported to be supplying 8 million pairs of Nike shoes annually, where it said that around 700 Uyghur people were being forced to work. Um, the, factory, the factory was said to have been a Nike supplier for more than 30 years. Wow. So all this is coming to light. Well, like... And, and, we, and we have, like, strong reservations against sweatshops. This is even worse because sweatshops, yes, they're paid, like... Mm-hmm. Sense compared to exactly. a, min- a decent minimum wage to make a decent honest living. Right. These people are being not only repressed based on their religion, but mm-hmm. forced. They're not getting any payment. Right. It's even worse. Like already, we knew Nike had tough conditions and stuff like that. Like these big corporations. Now, yeah. on top of it all, they're using these minority uh-huh. groups to their benefit, and we're purchasing this. We're supporting this. Right, and it's it's. I find it really crazy, and um, you know. It makes you wonder, like, what have these companies responded? What have they been saying? Um, yeah. So it's like it's really crazy. I know that um, Nike says that it has reviewed its suppliers' hiring policy, and to date has not found employment of Uyghurs or other ethnic minorities. But okay. I mean, okay. H uh, and M and IKEA said they would stop buying uh, cotton from the region. H and M said that it had an indirect right. relationship with one yarn producer operating in the region but said it was reviewing the relationship okay however despite all of this the coalition which includes over 180 Uyghur rights groups civil society organizations and unions say that without credible ways to check conditions in their region companies cannot be sure um that their that their products are not implicated without cutting their supply chains in Xinjiang wow so so even to this day we don't even know whether or not exactly our clothes are that cute little jacket you bought a couple of weeks ago from h&m <laughs> yeah. came from one of these people in these concentration camps and it makes you wonder like you know it's hard for consumers like is it, are they saying it's hard for consumers to say no to an amazingly priced garment when the workers are who made it are so disconnected from them but it's like yeah, they're going through freaking torture, and like you don't. No, but care. It, it's the people that are posting it on their story as well, wearing H and M clothing. You know what I mean? Exactly. And then you have like everyone. Like you have no. You have exactly. no idea. Don't get me wrong. It's not anybody's fault. We're not saying you're no. at fault for wearing H and M and like, posting these you things know, that you're a hypocrite. But it just all. goes to show how close to home exactly you're associated with this. Exactly. So like, if there's anything we want to do, you know, with our podcast is obviously raise awareness. So like, yeah. this was like really interesting, and. 
it's crazy because you know everybody wants to talk about these issues yeah but very few consumers are actually like making changes to their purchases because to like, be very honest they they raise concerns fine great that's mm-hmm. one thing but they should be doing a lot more right so you know what i mean something like really if they can't be a hundred percent certain that they're not supporting this horrible issue going on right now in Xinjiang, mm-hmm. then you stop using these specific suppliers you know right. what i mean and they've right. yet to do so. So yeah. well, that's obviously a very big issue. Right. And, and by us buying these things, we're supporting them basically neglecting this issue. Exactly. And I also I think that because this is like an ongoing situation, it's so difficult to tell the fact from the fake. And it's just really, really all crazy. And it's yeah. ongoing. And that's why it's really just so difficult to like understand and to be sure. But we, I mean, we hope that we brought awareness to it. Yeah, of course. Now, I'm sure you guys are listening to all this and like us, we're filled with rage and like super angry about this. Why isn't anybody doing anything? Yeah, of course. Like you're like, how on earth is all of this going on and there's no official, there's no international organization. You guys are probably thinking, well, what's the UN good for? What's Mm -hmm. the International Criminal Court good for? Why are they just sitting back and letting this happen now? This is what I'm going to explain to you because it's way more in depth. It's a lot more than just... Why isn't anybody doing anything? What can we do? Yeah, exactly. So basically, there's two really, really, really big issues that I will be getting into. But uh, I just want to talk about the International Criminal Court as a whole and what their limitations are today. So basically, the ICC is referred to by many as a giant without hands or feet meaning that it has a lot of power, but it can't do anything about it because there are so many limitations. So if we go back, once again, I'm not going to go back about the history of international law because we've previously mentioned it, but long story short, there's a very important part of international law that is interconnected with it, which is sovereignty. Sovereignty is the right of a government to self-govern and to make its own rules and to be the the only authority. So basically, it's it goes hand in hand with international law. And the basis is is that there's no higher authority of, other than the government of its own state. For example, China. There's no higher authority over China because they're a sovereign state. They have a right to self-govern. They have a right to go about their government and their state mm-hmm. without power. anybody intervening exactly it is what it is. there's no higher power there's no international no. like council that governs the entire planet no. you know what i mean so this obviously is the basis of international law and is what created international law but is also the reason for many of its limitations i will be going into more detail about the specific issues within international law and with sovereignty. But before doing so, I'd just like to point out that on July 6, 2020, the East Turkish government in exile and the East Turkestan National Awakening Movement both submitted to the Office of the Prosecutor to the International Criminal Court asking for an investigation for genocide and crimes against humanity regarding this particular case and specifically targeting senior Chinese leaders. Um, The only issue with this is that China is not a part of the International Criminal Court, nor did they sign into the Rome Statute, which is basically the statute in which the Genocide Convention was created and all of these different laws regarding international criminal law. Uh, This means that basically the ICC cannot intervene 
So um, this is an ongoing issue right. because any non-member state basically doesn't have to follow these rules mm-hmm. regarding genocide, crimes against humanity, which to me is just crazy. It's mind-blowing and, to this day. Right, and like a state who is not part of this can't can't even like stop it or can't even mention anything about yeah, it. Yeah, so I'm going to be talking about the loophole a bit later on. But basically, this is not just an issue regarding Xinjiang and, these, uh, and the Uyghur Muslims, but it's an ongoing issue that has basically been the reason why mass atrocities have been unpunished. In the past as well. Yeah, and that they could have been avoided and weren't because of this particular issue. For example, there was the mass atrocities in Myanmar not too long ago. And also, I'm sure we all heard of the war in Syria going on. These are cases that are very, very recent in our history that we've lived, we've all lived mm-hmm. through and that our international criminal court can't do anything about because these are non-member states. I'm going to be talking about the issues in more depth. So uh, one of the main issues is actually within the bodies of law and justice. So the International Criminal Court has no jurisdiction over non-member states because of its claims to sovereignty in international law, like I previously mentioned. But there are two ways in which uh, the International Criminal Court can intervene in non-member states. The first one is to be referred to by a member state, and the second one is to be uh, referred to by the United Nations Security Council. And this is in re- uh, reference to Chapter 7 of the UN Charter. And unfortunately, in this particular case, both of these accounts are, in this particular moment, not possible. Um, so the first, basically, loophole that I said that we can get referred to by a member state, um, in this very moment, we don't have any information on other states that are being directly affected by this because it's only in... Xinjiang. Mm-hmm. So right now there's no member states in the ICC that are going to be referring this case because no one else is being directly exactly, affected right. by it. Like in, in, in previous uh, genocides or in cases like this, you know, there's always, they always flee to another country and then it's that country that ends up, you know, reporting it. Yes, exactly. But and we're so just I'm actually, unsure if this is I'm actually going to give an example of how this was used in order to yeah get the ICC involved, and this actually worked out in favor. So in uh, Myanmar, there was mass atrocities against the Rohingyas, and it was Bangladesh, who was their neighboring state, uh, that basically is a member state of the ICC, Mm -hmm. intervened and referred this case to the International Criminal Court. So long story short, for those who don't know what's happening in Myanmar, this this was... Mm a couple of years ago, we still don't know whether or not it's happening today. It's very possible that it is, but we initially heard of this back in 2016, that the Rohingya group is being um, forcefully removed from Myanmar. Mm -hmm. And uh, we don't know to this day whether or not it is considered a crime against humanity or a genocide, but there is an investigation presently today deciding whether or not Myanmar has conducted international crimes. So this would not have been possible if it weren't for Bangladesh to intervene because a lot of the Rohingyas in Myanmar went to Bangladesh in order to seek refuge. And then Bangladesh was getting an influx of refuge mm-hmm. refugees. So it was because of this particular issue that they presented the case to the ICC. 
So it was actually in 2018 that the ICC ruled it had jurisdiction on Myanmar's criminal activity against the Rohingya because of this particular activity being occurred in Bangladesh, which was a member state. The next possible solution that I previously mentioned is for the United Nations Security Council to refer this case to the ICC. But to this day, it is highly unlikely for this to happen because of the structure of the United Nations, specifically the P5. So uh, the P5 are the five sovereign states who have permanent seats in the UN Council. These states are France, China, Russia, the UK, and the United States. For those of you who have noticed, China is one of these five sovereign states in the UN Council. Um, and another really important thing to know of this council is that all members have the power of veto. So regardless of the amount of international support on a certain issue or a resolution of this issue, any of these states can use their power of veto to overturn a decision. So that's exactly what's been going on today, is that all of the other member states have been coming up with numerous resolutions to this issue, because as Jasmine previously mentioned, is in November they came out with that statement acknowledging that there are issues going on about disappearance and determined camps. But the thing is, is that there's nothing that could actually be put in place because China is referring to this as an in, uh, internal affair and that'll be dealt within their own government. Exactly. The power of veto in itself is actually quite controversial. Um, although the purpose of it was to instill international stability, check against military interventions, and prevent any global domination, it has now resulted in these P5 members to use political and economic gain to veto resolutions or policies that might affect them, which is exactly what's, what's happening, happening here. Exactly. Uh, some argue that this particular right to veto is the most undemocratic aspect of mm. the UN and the main cause of inaction for numerous war crimes since it prevents the UN from intervening against their allies. Um, this has also been previously used in the case of, of Syria. So the right. thing is, is that these international organizations are not turning a blind eye to what's happening in the world. It's just that they, they genuinely do not have the jurisdiction to do anything about it. Because of what was happening in Syria, it was actually Russia who used their veto in order to overturn any sort of intervention. Uh, merely because of economic gain that they had with Syria. So this just goes to show how this is not the first case in which this power of veto was actually used in a negative light. Mm -hmm. And it's led to thousands, even millions to this day since the creation of the UN because of this specific right to veto. Right, but um, it, it wasn't used in this case with the, with the uh, Uyghurs. It's just a possibility that if it was brought to light. What do you mean? The 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 veto. This right to veto. No, it's been used in the in the case of the Uyghurs. Okay. Is that there has there have been okay. resolutions made by okay. everybody else. Okay, exactly. So basically Russia, UK, United States, and France have all came up with a resolution, but China used but, their veto. Exactly because okay, exactly. To yeah. prevent okay, I understand. Exactly. So it is going on. The U the UN is trying to do something about it, but because China is one of the P five mm -hmm. members of the UN And this is the issue here. Okay. Exactly. It's this right to veto that is very, right. very, very problematic. Exactly. And so and so China is is vetoing all these resolutions 
because they're trying to basically downplay what is is really happening and they want to yeah they're internal they're they're saying they're claiming it's Mm -hmm. an internal affair that shall be dealt with by their own government but the thing is is that everybody knows it's the government causing this harm Mm -hmm. right okay that's interesting yeah the second issue that i will be speaking about is actually proving genocidal intent so as jasmine previously mentioned in the definition of genocide the most important factor is to prove the intent to destroy the group either in whole or in part so it's not the numbers that make a difference. It's not who it is that makes a difference. No. It's it's that genocidal intent to eliminate this group. Exactly. So um, basically, the issue here is to actually prove this intent, which in in terms of law is in general, like even to, even to prove a small crime, to prove the intent behind the perpetrator mm-hmm. is one of the most difficult things difficult. to do as mm-hmm. a lawyer, let alone... As the International Criminal Court trying to end this. And there needs to be really concrete proof. There needs to be concrete evidence. And based on precedents, like say for example in the Holocaust, it was much easier to prove the genocidal intent because the government was was publicly stating their intentions to eliminate all of the Jews. And it was said very openly. You know, they made it very clear. Exactly. But the thing is, what everybody needs to understand is that all of these conventions and these statutes and these laws and international law itself was basically legitimized and brought to light in in light of the Holocaust. Right. So a lot of things all are... All these policies and, and all these... Are inspired by the Holocaust. They were put in place after these events. Exactly. But the thing is, it, yes, it was after these events, but it was it was inspired by the actions exactly. of the Nazi party mm-hmm. to create these laws. But the thing is, is that genocide comes in many shapes and forms and there's many different cases of it. Mm-hmm. And so it's very difficult because it's not always clear. Right. And a lot of people I, I find, and it's in my opinion, they're just always afraid or they don't want to give it that title. They don't want to say, oh, it was a genocide. Well, it is, it is the highest international crime you know what i mean so i understand the weight behind it but the thing is is that it's it's extremely extremely limiting the definition Mm -hmm. and all of the laws behind it because it is inspired by only one particular case so we have to put that in mind as well because as we've proven in other episodes like say talking about rwanda and talking about other cases of genocide it's hard to detect it because in our minds, we just think of genocide, Holocaust. Exactly. But genocide is an ongoing issue as we're, as we're mentioning it today. It's still happening today. Exactly. And usually, you know, you, know, you say, oh, this was a genocide when it was done, when it's done with. Yeah, well, that, that's, that's a very, very big issue as well. Is as that well. It's so difficult to define and to identify that that most cases of genocide are only labeled as a genocide when you have years all the after. numbers and all the statistics. Exactly. So that issue within itself is really, really alarming to the future of international crime. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Because it, when, the, like, say, for example, cases like this are happening today, it's like the International Criminal Court was designed to sit back and wait until it's done and then investigate and then years later deem it to be a genocide. Which is completely unfair to these people that right. are currently suffering. Because mm-hmm. right now, 
the world literally has to sit back and wait for it to end. Like in Syria, like in Myanmar, like in all of these more recent cases. Now that we have addressed these issues, I will be talking about possible solutions. Um, since we basically explained that there are major discrepancies within international law and the International Criminal Court and its many limitations, um, one of my possible solutions that I'm offering out there, that I'm voicing out loud, <laughs> is basically that we have to extend those limitations beyond just members of the International Criminal Court. Mm -hmm. And I understand that that's removing away sovereign rights, but we need to find a way in order for us to have a bit more access to cases that are going on like this. And I understand these are, it's, it's not going to be easy to balance sovereignty and international law because that is the ongoing issue within international law. And we do need that limitation because we don't want international law to be this, this global police that basically takes over complete control. That's not what we want whatsoever. We just want not so tight restrictions regarding such pressing issues in order to actually intervene when these crimes are occurring instead of basically like what we said waiting for it to finish and then finding a way to investigate it and then only years later finding justice for these people but why aren't we trying to prevent it while it's happening that's that's what i believe has to be a really really big reform within yeah, international law I agree. we need to find a way to balance sovereign rights mm -hmm. of these states right. but also a way to intervene yeah when it's actually, actually happening in the stop moment it in its tracks of course next what i believe is the most possible and the most accessible thing to do today is to adapt uh reforms to the unsc in which i believe is essential in order to best serve the interests of human rights and in order to do so is to eliminate this rights to veto mm. so i believe yeah. in doing so these member states do not have basically this power to veto such important things going on and to veto such pressing matters for their own political or economic interests, which is exactly what we're seeing today. And it's proven time and time again in the past, like I mentioned, like say in Myanmar and in Syria, how this right to veto has been the reason why issues are not being dealt with in the moment like they should. So that for me is one of the biggest issues. And I think it's one of the most possible solutions. I understand in order to balance sovereign rights, like the first possible solution I mentioned is a lot more difficult and it will come in time. I truly believe so. But I think this particular reform in the UNSC with this right to veto should be dealt with now and it's a much more pressing issue, and it will bring long-lasting and very effective results to minority groups and people that are basically getting their human rights violated to this day. Before ending this week's episode, we just like to uh, let you guys know that we did create a petition in light of this particular issue to raise awareness to the United Nations Security Council about the issues within the right to veto. So if you find that 
it's an issue as well and you agree with us. That it could be a possible solution. Yeah, we encourage you to sign, so we'll be posting it on all of our social media accounts, and if right. not... And hopefully it could raise awareness contact us directly. Yeah. Bring about a change. Yeah, of course. So uh, we'll be linking that um, in all of our social media accounts. And right. like I said, if you have an issue, then you can contact us directly and we'll be more than happy to send you the link. So as always, thank you for listening. Yeah, we hope you guys like this episode. Yes. And if you have any extra questions, do not hesitate to ask. Right. We have our email, we have our Facebook, our Instagram. We got it all. all right. So, so uh, see you next week. Have a good one.